This episode is brought to you by Skinny Pop Popcorn. Perfectly popped, endlessly delicious. Oh, so light and crunchy. Skinny Pop Original Popcorn is the snack you've been searching for. Made with just three simple ingredients, popcorn kernels, sunflower oil, and salt. Snacking never felt or tasted so good. Perfectly popped, endlessly delicious. Give yourself permission to snack and pick up Skinny Pop Original Popcorn today. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG-13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. The National Women's Soccer League kicks off March 16th on ION. Out front to win! It's a new Saturday night destination featuring the best players in the world. Takes a shot, she scores! See the full schedule and find where to watch at IonNWSL.com. This podcast is sponsored by Bang & Olufsen. A concert recording, a new symphony, even your favorite podcast. It matters how it sounds. Peter Bang and Sven Olufsen knew this when they founded their Danish audio brand in 1925, and their vision endures today. For nearly a century, Bang & Olufsen has been pushing the boundaries of audio technology and continues to sit at the forefront of acoustic innovation because sound matters. Find out more at bang-olufsen.com forward slash classical. Hello and welcome to the Music to My Ears podcast, brought to you by BBC Music Magazine, the world's best-selling classical music magazine. This week, Reviews editor Michael Beek sits down with the Russian-British conductor Vasily Petrenko. Vasily recently said farewell as chief conductor of the Oslo Philharmonic and is about to embark on a final season as chief conductor of the Royal Liverpool Philharmonic Orchestra. Speaking to us from his father's home in St Petersburg, Vasily talks about returning to the conductor's podium after months of lockdown, saying goodbye to the RLPO and his new appointment with the Royal Philharmonic in 2021. So Vasily, thanks so much for sitting down with me this afternoon. Uh, It's great to see you. I believe you're in Russia at the moment. Pleasure to be with you, Michael. And uh, yes, I'm in St Petersburg, uh, or near St Petersburg, and uh, spending this time here because I'm supposed to be in Liverpool, uh, conducting this week, but due to the quarantine regulations, uh, I couldn't do it because uh, in UK, this is 14 days since you arrived from the countries which are not on the travel corridor. So as Russia, as many other countries are not on the travel corridor, I couldn't come to Liverpool, which I feel very sorry for the public, especially in uh, those really tough days with quarantine restrictions. Uh, but you know, I hope to be back in Liverpool in November. Those days are challenging with travel. Yeah, absolutely. And, and with r- regards to that, obviously pre-pandemic, you obviously have been so busy uh, up until recently, sort of chief conductor of at least three orchestras. How, how, for the listeners, how does that work for you when you, you're juggling three roles like that? Well, to be a chief conductor nowadays, it means that you spend roughly between 10 and 15 weeks with the orchestra per year. So, of course, if you multiply it by three, it brings you to the big amount of weeks. 
Uh, however, to me, it always was a pleasure. You know, working as a chief conductor allows you to go more in depth with the orchestra in depth because you know the musicians, you know their potential, and you also can work in transition and you can do this weeks in concession so that on one week you're working on something and then it continues into the other weeks. It's always been a pleasure, both in Liverpool and Oslo and with the European Union Orchestra. And so, you know, I hope that the time of pre-pandemic, in some extent, uh, will come back. And and during the pandemic, you did some online interviews called uh, Lockdown Talks. Tell us a little bit about those, uh, why you wanted to do them and sort of what the outcome was from doing it. Well, I I was trying, this is the first time in many years when I had uh, more than enough of the free time, and I was trying to basically test what the other professions, what's like your profession is. And to me, it was very interesting to uh, talk to the people from various industries, not necessarily music, there were airline industries, hospitality industries, even financial industries, and to see how they affected by the current situation, to see the different parts of the world, what is the government support, what are the ways how the people are dealing with such a difficult uh, situation. And uh, also to see what is the reaction for the art in the different parts of the world. I'm planning now, actually started already, but it will be released soon, a next set of interviews, which hopefully will be called the Open Up rather than Lockdown. Because uh, I guess instead of all the figures and raising uh, cases of COVID in many countries, now, the society is ready to acknowledge the opening up and acknowledge the necessity of the culture, the necessity of social life. That's why countries take different measures, and that's why some of them, even in the face of quite serious danger of being overcrowded in hospitals, they still keep a lot of social activities up, even in England, even in the UK. If you compare the lockdown, which is now in parts of UK, uh, with the lockdown which have happened in April, there's less restriction now than in April. Many things for social life are open and possible. And I think that uh, this social health, the mental health, it is also very, very important for the people, not just physical health. And you yourself, you've gone back on the podium last month in Germany. I think you're doing another German concert this month. And of course, you're in Russia at the moment. Nice to be back, I'm sure, uh, in front of an orchestra. Well, I started the first concert actually went even back in July. Uh, was also in Dresden where I'm heading next week and uh, since then obviously it's very few concerts uh, the schedule is full or was full at least until now uh, until the January so I planned to come next week for instance to Genève which I also can't do and again because of the UK quarantine because then I need to return to UK in, this, in November actually I honestly believe that UK government can give a little bit more of exemptions, caring about their citizens, about their chief conductors. I think that the artists who are working in UK, especially like I was working for over 15 years now, uh, they should be granted possibility to avoid the quarantine by doing the COVID tests. But started back in July, have seen different measures, different regimes in different countries. Uh, now, as you say, I'm in Russia, did the concerts in Moscow last week. Uh, next week, going to Dresden, where concerts there, then back to Liverpool. 
And of course, at a time like this, uh, people are just sort of crying out for for musical experiences and, and concerts, and probably now drawing on memories of, of the concerts they've been to and, and holding them quite dear. You must have been to some great concerts over the years, perhaps while you were studying. Do, do any sort of spring to mind as being sort of the most amazing that you were uh, were at as an audience member? Uh, well, I remember a few concerts which uh, always probably will be stuck in my memory. One of the first concerts which I how to put it, I can acknowledge as a classical mm. music concert. It's probably not the first concert I've ever been, but the first I, I remember. It was one of the last of Mravinsky concerts in St. Petersburg, with, in Leningrad by then, with Leningrad Philharmonic, and I've been barely six years old. And I do remember uh, they, they played Schubert Unfinished Symphony, and then there was Bruckner in, in the second half. And I remember that, to me... Uh, Schubert was something, uh, how to put it, at my six years old intellectual level, I probably couldn't understand this intellectual level of Bravinsky and of the orchestra and of the piece. So to me, it was a little bit of a scary experience in some way, because I couldn't understand it. I enjoyed it, but I couldn't understand it. And then Bruckner in the second half, to me, at six years old, at that time, was terra incognita. So... I appreciated the gravity and the grandeur of this of the symphony. I think it was number four, if I'm right. But you know, to be honest, I can't remember for sure. And uh, I, in the same time, I didn't understand it. So it it was something really big, really grand, appreciated, but not understandable. I was still excited after the concert. Then I remember uh, Lenny Bernstein with one of the first visits to Soviet Union with New York Phil. And they played West Side Story, obviously, uh, the suites, and they, in the first uh, half, there were music of Gershwin, so American music. And to me, uh, this concert is very memorable because we were taught that music is very serious business. And everybody, even still up till now, in Russian orchestras playing everything with very, very serious faces. Uh, and then you can see how it's possible to enjoy what you're doing, enjoy being on stage. And of course, Lenny, uh, who is who was one of the most exuberant and most entertaining person on stage and I guess off stage. So with him and with New York Phil playing their music, American music, that was very, very special effect. Then I remember a concert of uh, Abado, Claudio Abado, one of the first concerts after he recovered from the cancer disease. And uh, they were with uh, Gustav Mahler, Jugend Orchester, at that time. And I remember you can clearly sense and feel that uh, he, Claudio, gained something by going through such a difficult territory, probably being one foot in the grave, but then coming back. And he had this special message. And to see, to witness it, it was Mother 9, and to see this pose at the end, which took probably one, even two minutes, it was incredibly long and touching and moving experience. And then much later, for instance, also in the same hall in uh, 
Leningrad and St. Petersburg, I've seen uh, George Schulte, who was trying to convince St. Petersburg Philharmonic about his way of performing Brahms and Beethoven. This concert uh, very memorable for me because from there I learned that if you respectful but very firm, you can overrule and overcome uh, resistance from the orchestra in the way of how they think about music versus how you feel about music. So he was a very firm person and the result he got at the end was probably one of the best performances of Beethoven and Brahms by this orchestra they have done in, in years. Wow. So these were quite formative experiences for you, particularly when you were much younger. Um, had you already sort of decided that you were going to be a conductor in some of those earlier moments, or did these concerts sort of help uh, sort of germinate that idea for you? I think they all helped, obviously. Uh, the, to say when I decided, it's very difficult to say that, you know, I woke up in one of the mornings and decided that I'll be a conductor. Not, not for sure not. I studied in a very special school which uh, was educating the choir conductor. So from seven years old, when you're passing the exams to school, it's a boys' school. And when you're starting to study, it's very selective, highly selective school. So to even to pass the exam, you have to be selected from 400 to 25. And then uh, every year outsiders eliminated. So it's almost like Olympic system in some ways. But since seven years old, you, you knew by then that if you will be able to finish the school, you will be qualified as con as a conductor for choir, you'll be given a degree, and most likely you would have uh, the guaranteed job, which may not be in central Russian cities, it may be somewhere in Siberia or somewhere else, but it will be very respectful, a respected job, it will have a decent, by Soviet standard, decent salary, and then obviously you will have a very respected life. Then, by study in this school, there was a time when the Soviet Empire was collapsing, and the choir system collapsed with that. So by the end, we knew that it would be really difficult to find the job for us. As for probably everyone at that time, we're talking about late 80s, early 90s, that was really hard time. And then I've seen us orchestra conducting more international. So for me, that was sort of natural choice. Uh, but also because I was very interested in variety of the instruments and variety of expressive ways as the choir is great thing and i still love it i hope that choirs will be permitted soon uh, and but the voice is a singular instrument it has a very big range of expressive moments and uh, of abilities however for the orchestra you have many other instruments many different instruments with different ways of making sound with different ways of thinking about it, breathing, scratching, snorkeling, hammering, anything. And to me, always was interesting to discover all those uh, instruments and to combine them all into the orchestra. And do you recall when you were when you were a child in that school a, a, an early piece of music that you you sort of were that captured your attention that you fell in love with or that you enjoyed performing? Well, you know, to say that I recall and remember the first piece of music which I was attached I can't say most likely it was some of the Soviet song about Lenin in the choir even before that school when I was four or five years old which we sang all together but in this school as we all started with, together with singing we started to learn piano uh, and one of the first things we were learning were Bach of course uh, with 
starting from easy preludes and fugues and then going through. It's probably one of one of them. And as it starts from the first one in C major, that probably was one of the first uh, preludes and fugues, one of the first pieces of music, which I could acknowledge as something that I was, at least I was playing it for several months. Now, of course, without this um, this pandemic situation, you're actually entering a period of some change yourself anyway, because you've come to an end uh, with your chief conductorship with Oslo Phil, and you're embarking on sort of an, an ending, if you will, with the Liverpool Philharmonic, and about to then move on to the RPO. Um, what is it? How do you feel when you're coming to the end of a long tenure with an orchestra? It must be quite tough. I I, I think it will be tough if uh, you just say goodbye, but I, I'm not. I'm handling it over to, I think, really good conductors, first of all, both for Santi and for Domingo. They are really good conductors. They will gain experience, and I, I hope they'll get even better. Secondary, I'm planning to go back to the both orchestras on the annual basis. It is sad in the moment that I don't know if I will achieve with any other orchestra in the future, the same sensitivity, the same very sensitive, very delicate connection in terms of music? I hope so, but uh, obviously I don't know. And to me, uh, this is also like, you know, that's a moment when you acknowledge that you're not getting younger. And that's a moment when you, you think that, gosh, the time is flying, and that's like seven years in Oslo. They were almost like, instant finger thought. And in uh, Liverpool, 15 years also went really, really fast. But I hope that, uh, again, this is not the end, this is the start of the new chapter, both for me and for the orchestras, and we, we will perform together in this year. I mean, maybe slightly reduced programs, but we will perform together, I really believe uh, in it, and uh, for the upcoming years. Absolutely, and and in in sort of joining with the the Royal Philharmonic Orchestra uh, next year, what sort of things uh, do you have to do to prepare when you're joining a new orchestra? Obviously, got an established orchestra, long history. Are there things that you already have in mind that you would like to achieve with them, or do you just begin work and see where it takes you? Both, obviously, you have in mind the trajectory and where you're going to. I'm very glad that uh, in case of Royal Philharmonic Orchestra, they have a very active and very modern management and the management which shares my ambitions uh, hopefully by the autumn 2021 the situation with pandemic will calm down and we will be able to perform on the big stages as it was planned this year with uh, Mahler symphonies in London in the Royal Albert Hall uh, and uh, you, you see where it can go however to achieve that you have to live with the people in the orchestra, you have to learn uh, with them, you have to discover who are those people and what it is in depth. Obviously, we met all together, but uh, the true understanding of uh, where are we going and how it's possible to help them to unleash 
their best qualities that can only come with a constant work. So uh, to me, it's a little bit of both. Uh, something what I imagine, how it will be, and something what I have to learn how to achieve this imaginative dream. For those listening who have no idea of the difference, what are the differences for you in, in a role as chief conductor versus music director? To be honest, very little. Uh, I think it's just how the titles are called in different countries. Uh, because, you know, obviously in Liverpool I was doing roughly the same job, uh, and in Oslo I was doing the same job. I was organizing the seasons with programs, on, on my programs, and also advising on the programs for the guest conductors and guest soloists. Uh, I guess it will be the same in uh, London, and uh, I think it's roughly the same. In America, though, it was a bit different, as the music director also had as obligations a lot of side things, like dinners with sponsors, for instance, or visiting the very special events, etc., etc. But you're doing them anyway in UK or any other country. It's just in America, they are part of contract and they're paying for it. They used to, at least. So uh, I, I don't think there will be many changes on this or that title. And to be honest, uh, you know, for me, for my pride or something, it doesn't matter at all what title this or that. To me, what is important is ability to work with orchestra and ability to perform at its best and at a better level tomorrow than today. Yeah. And in terms of the, your, obviously the coming season, but the seasons beyond that with the new orchestra, are you already, do you have, have in mind what it is you're going to be performing? Is that sort of set? Are you already reading scores and preparing? Well, it is set, but I don't know if it all will be possible to perform, sadly. Uh, it's, it's all set. We usually, we tend to plan at least one and a half year ahead. So now I'm talking to some of the orchestras and promoters about 23 2023 uh, but those days who knows maybe maybe we'll be forced to come to the very short planning schemes who knows uh, the the whole scene is changing changing to something different changing to something in my point of view much more challenging for the orchestras for any musician uh, what's it will make what it will be uh, in the next years. At the moment, it's really difficult to say, because I think once the pandemic is over, it will be over at some point, this way or another, uh, then we, we all will face a very, very huge economic pressure. And obviously culture is one of the first things which will feel this economic pressure and uh, which will need to deal with this economic pressure. How this economic pressure will affect all the cultural and arts organizations on the future will show. And, and do you, when you're not working on music, reading scores or, or having to listen, do you, do you get, turn to music for your own sort of pleasure? Is there, is there music that you sort of find sort of comfort in if you need a, need a moment? I wouldn't say there's some music uh, which I, I would find especially like one music. I like to listen to different genres and sorts of music. I'd say there's no bad genre of music or no bad direction of music. There's just bad and good music in every genre. 
And for that, yesterday, for instance, I'm now in the house of my dad in uh, near St. Petersburg, and uh, he had a little bit of jazz background in early age. So he was listening on the TV some jazz music yesterday, which I watched and listened with big pleasure. And uh, there's many other types of music which uh, I'd like to listen. However, when it's a heavy work, and I don't think that I'm alone in that, I think that a lot of classical musicians are the same. When it's a heavy work schedule, you're trying to have as many silent moments as you can, because your brain's still playing some music. And then you work uh, on rehearsals and on the concerts with orchestra. So you're surrounded by it. And then you're trying to get at least one hour of not having any music to your ears. Sounds of nature, they're great. The total silence, sounds of water, anything uh, non-artificial. Your job, you're obviously always focusing on uh, the next, the next score, the next project. Uh, what's what's in your head at the moment? What are you what are you what are you sort of focusing on? What are you having to keep thinking about? What well, there's there? uh, obviously this project in uh, Dresden, which I'm focusing on. Uh, there's the music of Haydn, uh, but it's cantata, which is unusual uh, story for me. Uh, there's uh, also Mendelssohn. There's m- many other things, and then the projects in April. You always, uh, you're right. You always work. In normal days, you work with orchestra on one program and then you study another one for the next week or for the week after the next. Sometimes it's two, sometimes it's three. Last week for me uh, was actually the first time, and I think first time for the orchestra, if not in all history, but for many years, uh, we played in Moscow, Die Grosse Fuge by Beethoven for the string orchestra. There's an arrangement by Felix Weingartner, one of the great conductors of the past. And uh, it's one of the most challenging and demanding pieces for the string instruments. Uh, people were always saying that Beethoven was deaf and he couldn't hear what he was writing. I think he wasn't deaf. This piece probably was ahead of its time for at least hundreds of, if not more, years. And the amount of dissonance, amount of innovation, amount of ideas in this piece is truly unprecedented. It's something new, something new to learn, something new to discover, something new to find. You're a prolific recording artist. You know, you've had some great series with Naxos and Onyx and, and Lauer Classics with Oslo. Um, what drives that side of your work? Is it is it pieces that you personally want to record or is it sort of born of sort of concert performances and wanting to capture that moment with the orchestra? No, I don't think they're born from the concert uh, performances. It's first I'm planning a certain repertoire to record and then we build the concerts around this repertoire. 
talking about recordings, I think only in case of Shostakovich cycle, the initiative of it was uh, on the Naxos side. They came with this idea, but I always loved music of Shostakovich, even if by then I didn't even knew some of his rare symphonies, which are also great, by the way. Uh, so it's always coming uh, from mainly from my mind, but then you obviously should have a collaboration with orchestra because, you know, if you say that, for instance, you want to record a modern cycle right now, but someone else just recorded it with orchestra maybe five years ago, it might not be a great idea. So you should still collaborate with uh, the musicians and ultimately stay sounding. I'm, I'm not sounding on recording and you usually you don't see me even just on the picture. Uh, so for that, it's always this collaboration. What recordings in general for me, uh, there's, I guess there's two main aspects. First of all, it's probably the best advertisement for the orchestra, for any orchestra, that people somewhere far away from where the orchestra is based can buy a recording, can listen to it and find that this is great and wants to bring this orchestra to their country, for instance. And it did happen, in my experience, several times already. Secondary for a conductor, it's kind of milestones because imagine you know, in 30, 40, 50 years, very few people will remember some of the concerts, if any. With recordings, it's something that stays longer. It doesn't mean that those recordings people will listen over and over and over again. Maybe, but who knows. But at least it's something that's left after you as a conductor. Because no, we're not composers. Composers are immortal as they left the music which will be performed. As a conductor, it's, it's a momentary art. It's a present art. In the past, it's very little we can give to the people. And I think it's very important to leave something for the audience and for the public for generations after. Yeah, so it's a legacy for your work beyond the memories that will be in people's minds after coming to concerts. Well, Vasily, thanks so much for, for joining me this, this afternoon. It's been a pleasure chatting. Wishing you all the best for your, your concerts. Hope they all go ahead as planned and look forward to your new interview series, Open Up. So uh, best of luck with that. Thank you very much and hope to see you in London or somewhere else on the concerts. Thank you, Michael. That was conductor Vasily Petrenko on Musical Life After Lockdown, Conducting and Recording. Thank you so much for listening. We hope you enjoyed this podcast from the team at BBC Music Magazine. Do let us know what you think by rating and reviewing it wherever you've been listening. If you want to find out more about BBC Music Magazine, we're available in print and various digital formats across the world. Or you can visit our website, classical-music.com, where you can read about all the latest music happenings, read thousands of reviews and a good deal more. Thank you to ACAST for hosting this podcast and to our producer, Jack Bateman. Do you want to be part of a global community of people who are passionate about sound? Join the House of Bang & Olufsen for the latest news on sound innovation, as well as invites to exclusive events, special offers and behind-the-scenes content. You'll also be the first to receive information about new and limited series products, from atelier editions to highly coveted collaborations. Sign up today at bang-olufsen.com forward slash classical.